All right, welcome to the Mile High Music Podcast here with Kyle and Ryan. We've had some great guests on our podcast recently, but in this episode, we wanted to kind of get back to our original concept for this thing, and that's just Ryan and I kicking around some of our thoughts, opinions, etc., about some of our favorite music and the music biz and all kinds of stuff in this particular episode. What do you think, Ryan? I, there's been a trend lately on Facebook of people picking out, you know, uh, asking other people to pick out their favorite records, right? Like top 10 or top seven. Right. And uh, so we figured we would just do our top three. Otherwise, this thing could drag on for a few days. We don't want that to happen. I mean, <laughs> each of us could have picked out our top one and we could have dragged it out for a couple of days. So we thought we'd keep it limited. <laughs> right. So anyway, we're kind of doing this off the cuff. I don't know that I, Ryan knows a little bit about my top three. I have no idea what his the three he picked are. So we're kind of keep it a little bit, uh, you know, off the cuff here. Well, two of them you know a lot about, and one of them you probably don't know a damn thing about. (laughs) All right. That sounds good. Well, let's see here. You got a coin, Ryan? Let's flip a coin. Who goes first, man? Who goes first? Let me grab one here. (sighs) All right. Let me get my laundry quarters out. (laughs) All right, you call it heads or tails. All right. Tails. Heads. You go first. I guess I'm going first here. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see here. I hadn't really decided which one of these I wanted to talk about first, but I think I will ease on into this here with not necessarily one of the first bands you introduced me to, but one that we've certainly spent a lot of time talking about. And that would be one of my most influential albums of the Allman Brothers Live at the Fillmore East. All right. Great album, man. Fantastic Um, album. Uh, This has, uh, and you know, we have all sorts of stories about these records, but this has one of my favorite slow blues has ever made with uh, Stormy Monday Blues. Um, That's just one of my all-time favorite songs. And and you got things like Statesboro Blues, more traditional songs, but you also get a lot of the Allman Brothers jazz influence with In Memory of Elizabeth Reed and Hotlanta. Right there's just some great stuff on that record. And, um, and you introduced me to these guys early on. Of course, one of our favorite stories between us, which is a gag I pulled on lots of friends of mine. <laughs> we, we were going for a car ride and we were taking turns, picking out CDs out of the binder. And, uh, so it was your turn to pick one and you pulled up a uh, mountain jam, which right. for the uninitiated is a, 33 minute and 39 second long, <laughs> long jam. <laughs> yeah. I had, I had multiple motives on that one. First, I love mountain jam. We were driving to the mountains and, you know, I really didn't feel like listening to a whole lot of Metallica, which was and, definitely my jam at the time. Right. So this way I got to put that off for a little while and just get into a groove. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, 20 minutes into the song and we're halfway to our destination. I'm like, what am I going to pick another song? <laughs> I, I pulled that on a kid in the, um, we were on a, some church band trip with a youth group. Right. And it was the uh, youth pastor's son 
and he knew and he was into metal but being the youth pastor's son he couldn't really have a lot of secular music but he knew my he knew my ipod had the good shit on it <laughs> and so uh, i was bsing with one of my buddies in the back and so he's just like oh man you should like just play me some songs i don't even care what and he put his headphones on and so i kind of cycle him through a couple of things and i see he's kind of dozing off and so i put on mountain jam and you know, and he's like kind of half in a daze, half paying attention, half not. About, and there's in the middle of the song, there's a 10 minute long drum solo. And about eight minutes into the drum solo, he wheels around and goes, Oh my God, is this drum solo ever going to end? How long is this song? <laughs> well, no. Mountain Jam is such a cool piece of music, you know, taken from a, a Donovan song. First, there is a mountain. But most recently in the Zetgeist, being used in a Jeep ad. <laughs> right? Right. And, uh, of course, with the almonds, took it to a whole nother level. I love our history with the UNI because since that famous trip, it's kind of become a staple for any road trip we take. Oh, yeah. I, I remember we were driving up to Breck, and you created the a- analogy that the... You'll, ha- you'll have to straighten me out on this, but, like, the first song, part of the song is morning time. I've got, like, you know, I don't know. I'm already kind of a heady dude, which is why I've never really experimented with drugs. And right. like in this, I have like my whole own whole like Fantasia nature movie <laughs> animated out in my brain for this song. Like if right. I was an animator or something like that, I have like every shot of this whole song figured out. Because I mean, you know, I know a lot of people I say, you know, oh, man, I listen, I listen to this song so many times I wore my record out. Right. My old truck, I actually listened to is I we had like a, a four disc set of live at the Fillmore East, the deluxe right. edition. And uh, Mountain Jam is like I think, I think it's like one whole disc unto itself. <laughs> right. And I listened to that disc so much that just lived in my CD player so much I wore the CD out. <laughs> and not well, from taking it out and shuffling it in my crappy wallet sleeve. I just played the song so much. It's a great piece, but already, Ryan, got to tell you, we're off on the wrong foot because this song really isn't on Live at the Fillmore. It's off Eat a Peach. Well, that's true. That's true. For me, <laughs> it was that deluxe edition version right. of Live at the Fillmore, but this was ma- this is the same recording that was from the same night as right. uh, as the right. rest of the Fillmore East was taken from. We actually, yeah. your, your brother Jeff sent us along this box set that was actually every tape they made because they did, it was like, three nights two shows a night and they recorded all of them for the show mm-hmm. and all the ones they released originally were all off of the last show of the last night and right. but everything you've ever heard from live the Fillmore is, is off that but for me it's it's very specifically this deluxe edition version of this because it's just got so many so many songs that were influential for me you know like I said what, what, one of my absolute favorite slow blues is Stormy Monday yeah, the old Bobby Bobby Blue Bland classic. Actually, it's a T-Bone Walker song. It's <laughs> way <Dwayne> explained <laughs> in this long intro piece. Yeah, this is the this is the changes T-Bone Walker did on it. You know, where yeah. it's it's got this turnaround that's uh um like minor three flat three two turnaround. Whatever you say, boss. I'm just a drummer. <laughs> it's this section right here. Yeah. 
It's funny for me, like my, my history with this album is, of course, different than yours. This is how it happened for me, Ryan. I was on a camping trip with my, my sister and, and ex-brother-in-law. I was about 14 and I used to be sent along as like chaperone on these things, you know, because I guess my parents thought that if little brother was along, then then my sister and her then boyfriend. Well, they might their, stay out of trouble. Yeah, they might stay out of trouble, which didn't work at all, of course, because for me, it was just a great opportunity to get into some trouble. <laughs> but anyway, no, I'll you. never... I'll never forget, we were camping up uh, up uh, Poudre Canyon uh, uh, outside of Fort Collins. And it had been a long weekend, you know, lots lots of beer, et cetera, et cetera. Not much sleep. And uh, I was in the back seat of, of uh, my brother's car, brother-in-law's car. My sister was with us and everything. And I, and I was sleeping and I woke up and Whipping Post was playing. And I'd never heard the Allman Brothers before that, ever. And, um, you know, I had started studying drum drumming long before that time, so I knew about time signatures, and I thought, wow, this is this is like rock and roll, but this isn't 4-4 time, you know? This is a different, they're like swinging here, you know? And it's not the normal thing, you know? And, yeah, and time I remember like, and whipping posts are all over the place. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool, you know? And I... I remember sitting up in the back seats and I said to my my ex-brother-in-law Pete, I went, what is this? You know, who what band is this? It's the Alman Brothers band, Kyle. Haven't you checked these guys out? And, and from that moment on, I was a huge fan, you know, and uh I, it just, you know, transfixed me as it did many guys my age back in those days and, and since that point on. But it was so I'll never forget that, you know, just waking up in the back of his car and hearing Whipping Post playing. And it just, it had it made an indelible impression on me. That's some um, strong medicine, as uh, Uncle Jeff would say. It certainly is. And, you know, and, uh, I think the Allman Brothers, I mean, it's it's been a important touchstone in our relationship. I mean, we went to go yeah. see them five times at Red Rocks. Something like that. A lot. Yeah. Four, I think it was five times. Yeah. And I remember the first time was when they were on, on tour for Hitting the Note when they had a... Uh, that was the first time that Derek Trucks was full-time with them. Right. Um, and you well, know, and not, we'd already seen Derek Trucks solo prior to that. Was that prior? I, I couldn't remember. I'm pretty sure it was. We we drove up to Steamboat. Yeah, he was doing a, like, playing at the base of the mountain thing, and we drove all the right. way to Steamboat to watch his 45-minute set and turn around and drive back. Right. It was great though that was great and we I had mean, the, I, all of his uh solo band cds he had out at the time we all we brought them all with and had him sign them yeah he is a super cool dude i have to tell the story of when i was playing uh uh brendan's every monday night which is the blues bar in downtown denver in the 90s and we did the blues jam down there every monday night and now and then people touring bands would come down they'd hear about a blues jam so they'd come down well we got word that this guy, Derek Trucks, is in town. And I think this might have been his first tour. He was like 17 years old and playing at the Gothic Theater. And I didn't, you know, I didn't, I hadn't heard about him. So I was anticipating a Stevie Ray Vaughan clone, as most young guys were back then, who were getting into blues guitar. And so he came down with this whole band, which is some pretty no noted musicians, 
in that band, Yonrico Scott and others. And anyway, I stand about four feet away from him and he just blew my mind that night right off the bat. I mean, I couldn't believe that somebody that young had that much depth to his playing and, and the incredible dexterity, of course, and his bottleneck style, unbelievable. Derek, Derek definitely kept the, kept the magic going with the Allman Brothers thing, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. And, you know, as a the jumping off from that, you know, now Marcus King these days, I think he, out of the new guys kind of in the jam blues scene, yeah. I think he's the guy that really encapsulates the Allman Brothers sound. You know, we got uh, Elizabeth Reed up now. And I, I feel like what's so crucial to the Allman Brothers sound is not like a lot of the other jam bands who, like, you know, take, like, some jazz elements here and there. Like, all the guys from the Allman Brothers, they were, like, into jazz yeah and and in like a really serious kind of way and I, I feel like they incorporated that a lot more rather than just you know peppering it in here and there yeah you you hear coltrane in there and you definitely hear coltrane and Derek trucks is playing and 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 marcus king too yeah so it's cool those guys are carrying on that tradition that a lot of people don't really think about when they listen to Live at the Fillmore and stuff that, you know, as much as these guys were into the old great blues artists like Muddy and, and Sonny Boy and T-Bone Walker, they were also deep into Coltrane and Miles and, and artists like that. And 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 uh, it influenced their playing and their chord changes and all that stuff. You know, we could do this whole podcast on the Allman Brothers, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we could do... We could do we do a lot about the almond brothers, <laughs> but let, let's let's move on to uh, to your record here. What do you want to go go to first? Okay, well, I kept mine kind of blues centric, and you know, you're talking about favorite records. I mean, of course, I could talk about pretty much any Beatles record. You know, I I grew up listening to Beatles. I remember my brother got in Sergeant Pepper's and Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, when I was 10 years old, and I was really never the same since after that. But the music that's really um, kind of, uh, I don't know, really gotten inside me, and uh, I don't know if it's defined me or other, it's just been a big part of my life is blues music. And so when I start thinking about my favorite records, I have to think about the stuff that's, that's last, left a deep lasting, lasting mark on me. And so these records that I picked definitely have done that. So the first one I picked, sadly, is not in print anymore. And that's a my man, Freddie King. I mean, of all the, the, the three kings, and I love B.B. and I love Albert. But man, Freddie King, wow. I mean, I, before we did this podcast tonight, I was looking through some video that was on YouTube. And every time, every time I watch Freddie King on video, it just... It makes me want to laugh and cry all at the same time. It's he's that powerful, and um, he, he so, really is. You know, he's such a versatile player too. Yeah, and, and uh, he just really, really moves me. He's not only a fantastic guitar player, but wow, what a singer! I mean, he's got this kind of. He's a huge guy for one thing, but he's got this high kind of tenor range, really, and uh, and he can do so much with it. Uh, he can growl. He can make it sweet, you know, and when you watch him live in the videos, <laughs> such a great performer, too. He's just like I said, he makes me want to laugh and cry out at the same time. 
Anyway, my my all time favorite Freddie King record is one that's out of print now. It's on it was on Polydor called. Uh, it's just entitled 1934 through 1976, and that was you know the years Freddie King was alive. And there's a there's it's kind of like a a mix of stuff on there. The whole second side is is Freddie playing with Eric Clapton's band at the time, which was the band that Clapton used on um, on uh, the 461 Ocean Boulevard album. Which, Jamie Oldacre on drums, Carl Radel on bass, George Terry on guitar, I believe Dick Sims on keyboards, if I'm remembering correctly. But anyway, so the whole second side is great, but I like a lot of the first side, which is some in studio and some live with, with just with Freddie's band, which includes his brother, Benny Turner on bass, who I was got to see down in Memphis when we were down there last, Benny's become a, 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 a force in the blues world in his own right these days. But anyway, I, you know, a lot of guys agree with me on this one. When you're talking Freddie King, the song Pack It Up really speaks to us white boys, man. I don't know what it is. It's, it's so funky. And these kicks. <laughs> this intro kills me. <laughs> so funky. And it's, it is just the blues, you know. But Freddie takes it to another place, man. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like tone he gets on this one, especially for like that main riff. You yeah. Know, it's just, I don't know. It's just so good. Yeah. It's got like that sort of cl- 70s clavy sort of sound to it. Right. I don't know. Just a, a clav is always like, it's just the sound of funk. Yeah, right. You know, I think that's what funk guitar players are going for. You know, use that middle pickup and a heavy compressor and stuff like that. They're just trying to make their guitar sound like a clav. Right. I mean, I could listen to this song over and over again a million times and never get tired of it. It's just so funky in that drum groove. I mean, listen to that, man. Good Lord. These horn arrangements too. There's this one little part in here that just slays me every time. <laughs> one of my great regrets is that I didn't turn on to Freddie King until about 1979, and he passed away in '76. This part. <laughs> Um, so anyway, I never got to see him live, which kind of hurts. I, thank God for YouTube, man. I've spent a lot of time watching Freddie King on YouTube. I'll tell you what, though. Listen right. to that. That's so passionate. I mean, this part. It's the space part. Bop. Yeah, Freddie's got so much good stuff, and that's that's it's a little bit open since you know your your record pick is a you know it's, it's kind of a smattering of things. I, I I've got a story also, you know, from our history here, and that I I remember when I first started playing guitar, um, I'd taken some lessons. I remember you got me this uh, it was a disc of like it was like before all these tabs were available online and everything, right? And it was like eight or nine blues classics or something like that. 
Right. And I remember the very first song I ever learned the lead from was BB uh, King's Thrill Is Gone, which was on there. Right. But I, I remember what was also on there was, of course, the the guitar classic Hideaway. Right. I don't know what you're playing now, but it's cool. <laughs> this is, oh, this is like a different version of it. This is off of Freddie King as a blues master. Oh, figures he changed it up. Could never play anything the same way twice. You got to play the the real hideaway, though, man. This is pretty funky, though. I do like this record. Freddie King as a blues master <laughs> is, is great. <laughs> but, you know. Pull the original one up here. It should be, like, etched in stone. There you go. That if you're going to learn to play guitar, you need to learn to play some blues, number one. And if you're going to learn to play some blues, you better learn how to play Hideaway. I mean, come on. I, I have never, <laughs> at, at no jam, no get-together with anybody's, I have never played with anybody that didn't totally fuck up all the little groove <laughs> changes in this song. <laughs> Man. I mean, I've, I've played with so many people, and it's like everyone always sort of knows this part. Right. You know, and it's just like, oh, yeah, the shuffly part. But then it goes into, like, the funky groove changes. And the, the Peter Gunn part. Yeah. <laughs> I played with this guy up in Fort Collins, my first blues band with a, this with a guy. Right. No one ever knows this part. Yeah, and then the, the Peter Gunn part's the part after this, and then it drops back down into it. And I've mm. played this with a bunch of people and stuff like that, like brute force my way through it. And everyone's always looking at me like, what's this? I was like, dude, have you never learned more than the first, like, 40 seconds of the song? <laughs> God. Hey, it's a piece, man. It's, it's a... I mean, it's not... Uh, Ingwe Maltstrom, it's none of these little parts are mind blowingly difficult, but you just, it's the song, man. If you're going to play Hideaway, you got to freaking play Hideaway. Come on. I, I know. It's <laughs> it's like Sissy Strut. Like, um, yeah. Like, uh, I was playing a show with some guys uh, a couple years ago, just on like a pickup. And they decided we wanted to do Sissy Strut. And, and of course, the drummer and the bass player are like, oh, that's all. That, that's great, man. And I got time to jam it out, and these dudes had no idea what to do. <laughs> it's like one of those things where it's like everyone like sort of like they learn like the main theme out of it, and then after that they just they just totally yeah. forget. It's off to La La Land. I, I was having to walk them through like accounts as to like how many times it goes around all these parts. <laughs> I feel so fortunate to have um, back in '78, '79. I met this guy up in actually met him in Estes Park. A guy named Mark Van Ark who some of you old-time Colorado people remember. He's still living up in Fort Collins. But it was very fortunate for me to be able to fall in with this guy because Mark was a Freddie King freak. And, um, you know, I mean, it's not just the guitar part. You got to know how to know how to play the song on drums the right way, too. There's little parts there, right? Right. I mean, we played that ending just like that, you know. But... Um, Anyway, he turned me on to all that stuff and a bunch of other stuff too, Louis Jordan and everything, all the good shit. I mean, Freddie's just always full of all sorts of little specifics. And this next one I want to pull up from him was the one that I I, I, I watched them botch at the Grammys just like it was any other jam night. And uh, it was when Gary Clark Jr. was doing it. And that was, uh, was uh, going down. Oh, yeah. I hear you, man. 
I've seen this song demolished at so many jam nights. I... Was this the one that you did at the Grammys? I, I think you're thinking of uh, Born Under a Bad Sign. Born Under a Bad Sign. That's another one everyone wants to do because they think they know it. Uh, that's Albert King, yeah, but... It was actually next on my list. <laughs> this is another one of those where it's like you just... It's like everyone thinks they know how to play this song, but so few people actually do know how to do it, you know? It's one of those that, things where it's like the groove, like your gripe about uh, Cream's um, Sunshine of Your Love. Sunshine of Your Love, because it's, it's on the one and three, not the two and four, and everyone plays right. on the two and four. Well, the thing about all that stuff is, to me, you know, and I'll get on my soapbox here a little bit, is like if you're in a cover band and you're playing Michael Jackson's songs and you're playing the song Beat It, you know, if you don't play that part like it is on the record, it's not Beat It. You know, it's it might be cool, whatever it is you put in there, but similarly, if you're playing Going Down, there's some things you got to play right. If you're playing Hideaway, you got to play them right. And that's what make these, makes these songs, these songs, you know, it defines them. And, you know, people, the uneducated or uninitiated out there that say, oh, all blues sounds the same. No, it doesn't. You know, not if you, not if you um, listen to the really great players of the genre they take the time to even though the chord changes might be simple they take time to do little things that make make each and every song different you know and, and give up flavor so, right because it's like this this song one of the crucial parts of it is you know while the whole groove is sort of like loose and swinging it's like between the the piano and what's going on in the bass and drums it has like yeah. this driving straight eight feel underneath it right know? like the chain the train chugging along behind everything right and that's right. What, that's what gives it the energy you know yeah it's it's this it ends up giving it like a punky feel because the whole thing's just you know it's punching along right and if you don't do that it's just you know it's like if you're, if you're just doing the part that's kind of the cool soaring melody that goes over the top of it then it doesn't have it doesn't carry that energy through it right anyway Freddie King's great. <laughs> yeah. Moral sure. of the story. Yep. Sure is. So what's your next one? Well, it's uh it's appropriate going with that that punky energy. <laughs> you call it punky, I call it funky. <laughs> <laughs> and uh this is another live deluxe edition record that i just about burned out my cd of back in the day i'll go first track right off of it here the who's live at leeds <laughs> all right <laughs> you want to talk about passion and power you know just just one of the strongest sounding bands of all time and you know all my friends have heard me lay this rap out a bunch but i mean how many other bands do you know that could put out and on, on i picked the deluxe edition specifically because it does include at leeds they did a whole live performance of tommy okay. the whole thing minus a couple of tracks that they always cut out live but how many other bands could take a s- album that had synthesizers and string arrangements and horn parts on it and all these additional layers and strip it down to just guitar-based drums. And the thing still sounds like a 747. Right. 
Yeah. This album, too, I go way back with. And, you know, my first drum set was this beautiful little Gretsch jazz kit. And unfortunately for the Gretsch jazz kit, I was way into the hoop <laughs> at that time. And I was flailing away trying to play along with this album and Tommy and, and uh, with the butt ends of my 2B sticks, you know, <laughs> right. on this little piccolo snare drum, you know. Uh, I wish I'd taken better care of that drum set. <laughs> well, you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. And you know, I, I just I think Townsend's just such a creative powerhouse. But he is an interesting thing. Just you know, I know everybody that knows me has heard me talk enough about Live at Leeds. But I think there's this underrated element that the I don't know that the Who necessarily get a lot of credit for. And in my opinion, the Who are the masters of a cover. Hmm. You know, you have tracks on this album like uh, Summertime Blues. Eddie Cochran. You know, and, and they can just take these songs and just just twist them into something that is like only vaguely reminiscent of the original. Yeah, it's funny for me. You know, the, I was born in 57, 1957. So it's kind of a a late part of the baby boomer generation, you know. I was I was ten in 1967, the summer of love, you know. Um, so the first time I heard "Summertime Blues" was this version. I'd never heard of Eddie Cochran, you know, until later on. Right. Um, so when I finally got around to hearing the original and they didn't have the internet back in those days you couldn't just search these things out and find it if you wanted to hear the original summertime blues you had to go down to the record store and see if they had a copy of it you know uh, so anyway it took a while for me to hear the original and when i did i thought man that's kind of tame <laughs> you know? uh, and, you, and you really want to talk about an original version of a song that sounds tame but one of, one of my all-time favorites on here is their Mose Allison cover. Right. Of uh, Young Man's Blues. I love Keith Moon on this, man. I know a great local band that covers this song sometimes. They always <laughs> just blow my mind. You ever hear of these guys, Ryan? They're called the Movers and Shakers, and they tear this bad boy up. <laughs> On the occasion you get to, you get to see this one, it's a special treat to close out the night. Well, it's always fun for for Ryan and I because we're such huge Who fans, and it's like, well, when we get to play this, it's the only time in my music career that I've been just to able to play like to to channel Keith Moon as best as I possibly can, which means right. I don't pay much attention to where the first beat of the measure is. I don't pay much attention to anything other than just just totally getting into it. And whatever you're playing, it's great fun playing off you, whatever you're playing in there, because, you know, you can go to that place a little bit, maybe not well, as good as these guys, but. <laughs> well, if, if you want to remotely try to play the who, it's like, more important than really focusing on nailing all the specific notes, you just have to like channel some pent up rage. 
Yeah. You know, right. I, I saw a really funny performance, in my opinion, from a few years ago of... Um, it was Paul Gilbert from Dream Theater and, you know, all these other, like, really heady shred guys. They got together. They wanted to do a Who tribute show and watching these guys do this material. And they're all great players. Right. But all, like, a little too studious. Yeah. You know, and they, they couldn't really encapsulate that attitude or like really sell it but the funniest part at the end of it is the end of the show paul gilbert goes to try to smash his guitar and and just you can just i think it's like the ultimate point of like telling me he just does not have that rage in his soul like that and he's well, he's trying was- desperately to break this guitar and it's not happening it's just like come on man you just have to get pissed <laughs> we'll play a little bit of that uh, Mose Allison though, the original Young Man's Blues before we get too far off of that cause it's just yeah just well, show you how little... far they can take a song <laughs> oh well a young man ain't nothing in this world these days it's a jazzy little tune I said a young man Ain't nothing in this world these days. See, that's what's cool about Townsend and really the whole British invasion thing. Is that you know Pete and probably Roger Daltrey too. When a young they listened to Mose Allison and thought, this, this shit is great. You know. All the people oh, yeah. They didn't think it sounded too old timey or it, when they went to take on this song, they just put their own slant on it, but they, they liked it just the way it is. Oh yeah. You know, it's just they were so good at just I don't know, hearing something totally different. The old you know, in a song. And and what I think is the most unbelievable version of that is and a young man you know th- these are all great and and these are mostly like live pieces for the who that they would do these songs but included on the album version of tommy is eyesight to the blind and then on mm. tommy parentheses the hawker right and they work this song into it it's originally a sunny boy williamson song which bb king has some versions of right but just they take this like what's really like kind of a sweet love song and turn it into this really minor spooky song right. that within the story of Tommy is about a prostitute. Right. And, uh, you know, in, in the original, this is just sort of like kind of a mid-tempo shuffle, major key. Yeah. And and they managed to, like, take this happy song and just wrench it in ooze to make it this dark, sidious song. Mm-hmm. I got, I got to drop a little advertisement in here for, uh, I believe the way it's going to work out is the podcast coming up after this one is that we uh, sit down and talk to my old friend Eric Baines, who actually auditioned for Roger Daltrey uh, in L.A. where he lives. And it's funny because, you know, usually you hear rock guys talking about how they can't touch jazz uh, because it's just too much, you know, for whatever reason. But Eric is a pretty accomplished player and has played with Lee Rittenauer and Kato Matsui, and he's played a plenty of jazz, right? And he came away from that Daltrey uh, audition going, you know what? There's something here that I haven't got in my bag yet. And that is exactly what you were talking about, that attack, you know, that anger, that, that 
energy that if you're going to try to step up and play some Who music, you better be bringing some of that or else it's not going to have, it's not going to sound like the Who. Yeah, you know, and, and I've heard so many people be uh, dismissive of it. I've, I've famously had a conversation with our singer Andy Weber's dad one time, and I've heard the sentiment from a lot of people where it's like, oh, well, it's just easy to play, you know, yeah. big and loud, but can you play soft and delicate? And it's just like, oh, is it easy to play big and loud? Is it? <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd like to see you actually try to do that, you know? It's, it's People don't realize how much you really have to, you have to put your back into it if you if you want to sell it. Yeah. You know, if you otherwise it comes out thin and wimpy, you know, you can't yeah. just you can't go through the motions on it. Right. All right. Uh, well, but anyway, so, again, I could I could spend the rest of the night talking about. Well, by, acclaimed by many uh, audio files to be the best recorded live record ever made. And that is so hilarious to me because pretty low tech by even 19. I mean, what was it recorded in 79 or 69, uh, ni- 71? Uh, no, it was 1970. 1970, so right in the middle there. Well, you know, the L.A. sound kind of took off in the early to mid-70s and and kind of homogenized into the 80s from there with all kinds of tools and everything else. They they didn't have much of that at, at the Leeds Concert Hall in England on that that particular night. What 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 do you suppose they did have to record with, right? You, you know, you, know, uh, you, you know what? I, I've I've read about it. I, I I can't remember for sure right now, but I think it was just on a four track. Originally, Leeds was supposed to be the test run for the equipment, and they're going to record the next night at Hull. Right. Um, but they lost all the for some reason they lost the whole bass channel for the whole night. They did mm-hmm. release live at Hull a few years ago, and by taking, they basically spliced in the bass lines from live at Leeds and razor bladed them into. Right, the the hall recording, but you know, it, I, I th- what I really think is interesting about this record is if you do some digging around online, you can actually find the isolated instrument tracks for right. um, for all four members of the Who, and uh, and you can listen to performances like I know, um, uh, Young Man's Blues is on there, and I think Substitute, mm-hmm. and you can hear just how screamingly loud it is because everything is just bleeding into everything Mm -hmm. and bleeding into it a lot. And, uh, but you know, I, I think a lot of people discredit that, especially in, in the live recording realm, you know, you want to get everything all nice and isolated, but if you want your sound to sound like you're the loudest, biggest rock band in the whole world, (laughs) we're going to be some mic bleed you know you can't have the guitar sound like it's in a little box it needs to sound like it's as pete was running at the time he was running in front of three high watt stacks on his stage and then an additional high watt full stack on on entwistle's side so he could monitor and then reverse for entwistle's rig yeah i I don't imagine the uh the sound guy came up to the stage and told pete could you turn down your stage volume a little bit it's pretty loud I, i can't control you in the house That'd be, that'd be a good way to get knocked the fuck out. <laughs> there, there's a really funny video from, uh, the, I think it was in 1972, they were recording some live performances for The Kids Are All Right. Right. And uh, it's I think it's one of the last live recordings um, with Moon. But Townsend was in a mood <laughs> that night. And you can find this outtake and, and the way Townsend would run his rig is instead of putting all of his amp heads on top of the stacks, 
he had his stack of amp heads and then the stacks of cabinets off from that. And some tech kept coming over and messing with one of his amp heads. I, I don't know what was going Ooh, on. And you see him turn idea. around and he, and he yells at him. And um, and and Pete's high watts, I think they were actually 250s. They weren't even 100 watt heads. Mm. 250 watt heads. They're huge. You know, they weigh like 85, 90 pounds. And, and the guy keeps going over there and messing with him. And you keep seeing him turn around and yell at him and, and shoo him off. And the guy was right behind one of the amp heads. And, and Pete just stiff arms the top amp head just right into the guy's face. Right. <laughs> you know, those are not dudes you wanted to mess around with. Or another one of my famous stories from The Who is, is Daltrey coming up with his mic swinging right? technique. And he said, you know, they were playing some, some matinee gig and the crowd is all pushed on. And these two guys right in front of the stage, they're pinned against the stage, but they just kept talking a bunch of trash to him. And Daltrey said he's, you know, it's about three or four songs into the set. These guys keep yelling at him and he just sort of feels the heft of the mic in his hands and right. spools the thing up and pops <laughs> the thing right into the guy's mouth. <laughs> all right. So I'm going to go to my next record here. Okay. And uh, I'm hoping you can, you can pull it up and play a little bit of it before I announce it. So the, the blues fans out there, see if they can guess who this particular blues artist is. This is a live album, live at the Fillmore in San Francisco. Yeah. And this to me is possibly... Well, it, it's, it is in my top favorite blues songs and carried me through some, some dark times. You know, it made them a little, little bit darker, but they had an ultraviolet hue. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Albert King, Live Wire Blues Power, recorded at the Fillmore in San Francisco, as I mentioned. And... Uh, Man, I, I saw a poster recently that was like a month run at the, the Fillmore in San Francisco. I think it was in like 1970, 1971. Yeah. What what an unbelievable venue. And like that, especially like that three-year run where it was yeah. just like every week it was like another band that is etched into the halls of music history. And Bill Graham, you got to give the guy tons of credit. And... You know, I understand where promoters are coming from these days. They're trying to maximize their their investment, and it's expensive to produce shows. But what Bill Graham did back then was such a gift to society because you'd have these shows where it would be Albert King, The Grateful Dead, maybe Miles Davis or Chick Corea. You know, you'd have these, these bands that had not much to do with one another, really. I mean, obviously, maybe the dead might have done some blues songs or something, but... Tenuous you know, at best. Yeah, I mean, just just widespread in the, in the sound. And Bill Graham had the courage to put all these groups together on the same bill, and of course, in those days, people would go out and support that stuff, and they would they would, even if they were Janis Joplin fans, they would listen to Chick Corea. They would not just walk out, they would check it out, you know, and and they would therefore get their their uh, their minds blown a little bit and their appreciation for different kinds of music. I'm sure that's part of the reason the Allman Brothers got turned on to John Coltrane, you know? It's because they were going up to New York and playing. 
you get a chance to see somebody like that, you know? Yeah, it was an atmosphere that was would foster right discovering new music instead of like, oh, hey guys, it is blues night tonight, or it is ska night tonight, or it is yeah. modern funk night. Here are a bunch <laughs> of bands that all sound the same. So this record, um, Livewire Blues Power, um, I was just checking a little bit out of it on my research before. Interestingly, uh, later on, a, a blues guitar great and a great blues artist on his own, Sun Seals, actually plays drums on this record. But um, this album, uh, I had mentioned this guy, Mark Van Ark, before, and there was a period of my life, about 79, when we first met our sax player, Eddie, Eddie Silk, and I was living above this club in Fort Collins, and we were deep into the blues. I mean, we were listening to a lot of music and rehearsing a lot. And there was a Goodwill store across the street, and they had record bins, you know. So I happened to pick this this record out, and Aretha Now, I got them for a quarter a piece. <laughs> I still have these records on vinyl, but I got. I mean, this is a class. This um, in doing my little bit of research before this podcast. Of the records that I picked for the top three, this is the only one that has its own Wikipedia page. <laughs> That's how influential Livewire Blues Power is to Stevie Ray and hordes of other guitar players. I mean, Stevie Ray took obviously so much from Albert King and, and uh, the note bending and uh, the phrasing. I mean, yeah. Listen to that. That's just dripping, man. Uh, Albert was great. I, I got to hard, see him a few times. The hardest part about playing Albert riffs is just those. His bends are so slow. Right. But they're so even, you know. It's like when you're trying to do a slow bend, it's like it's hard to, like, make the pitch just, you know, if he's going between two notes, he's not speeding up or slowing down as he's bending that note. It's just this perfectly flat line straight to it landing right when he wants it to and and emulating that is so difficult it takes so much control well um there's a video of, of a band i used to be in with a local guy david booker here in denver and david had a band called the red hot blue captain's red hot blues band and this is you can find this on youtube we were playing in that same club that i I lived upstairs in, in 79. I ended up playing there many times over the 80s and 90s. It became Linden's. And uh, we were playing in there one night and Albert King came in. And it happens to be the night that somebody filmed this video. And uh, so at the end of our first set, I went back there and every, you know, everybody knew Albert King was in the house and he was sitting in the very back of the room. Talk about a presence, man. I mean, it, it was like Moses had walked into the freaking club. Right. Know? I mean, and a very large guy, and he was dressed up in his suit and everything, looking good. And so I went back there, and I, you know, I I was probably about 27 at the time, and walked up to his table, and I'm like, Mr. King, man, I just want to tell you how much I've enjoyed your music. And it's so cool that here he was in that club that I had bought the record for a quarter for right across the street five or six years earlier. But anyway, um, I shook hands with him and I, I always liken it to, it was, 
my little hands like sticking my hand into a bunch of bananas. I mean, his fingers were so huge. I, I was like, where'd my hand go? You know, he's <laughs> <laughs> a big man. He was. And I'll never forget his comment either. We were, we were a pretty uh, lively bunch of guys back then. And, and, uh, we were probably a little extra stimulated that night. I remember playing the recording. <laughs> That's a polite way to put it. Yeah. We were, <laughs> on that YouTube, there we were playing flip flop and fly. And it's like listening to a big Joe Turner on a 33 and a third LP played on 78. You know, <laughs> it's really fast. And Albert King says to me, he says, you guys sound good, but man, you boys need to slow it down. <laughs> he was right. Well, you know, <laughs> can't argue with the results. So, uh, just play it before we get out of Albert. Play that other cutoff here. It's called Please Love Me. It's a old BB uh, King tune. And, and listen to how Sun Seals can play this shuffle, man. Sun Seals can play some drums now. It's pretty, uh, pretty good stuff. Sun Seals laying it down back there. You know, it is one of the things I love about Albert. You know, as will be a running theme throughout my my record choices. I I, I like some good angst. Yeah, you know, Al- Albert when he has digs, some. When he digs into it, man, you know, it's just. You know, I think that's what a lot of people who who don't really appreciate blues music and say stuff like, "Oh, blues music sounds the same," and they they don't really appreciate, especially like when you contextualize when a lot of this music was being made, just how how rough it was. Mm-hmm. You know, compared to anything else anybody had ever heard, you know, you get these stabby guitar riffs, right? Pretty stabby, you know? and it, it's 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 from being pissed off, you know. It's this internal boiling. Yeah, Albert King definitely. Uh, I, I got an opportunity to see him three or four times. Actually, the very first concert I saw ever was. John Denver opened for Albert King, Chuck Berry, and Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know. That's John Denver was just uh, John Denver was just getting started back then. He was played solo acoustic, and uh, it was a great bill, though, man. Chuck Berry was on fire that day. Woo! Oh, man, Chuck's another one. If we do another one of these, I'll have to talk more about Chuck. But well, yeah, you gotta gotta give props to Chuck, of course. But. Uh, we're moving along on the old clock here, Ryan. We better get to your other. Yeah, the other, the other songs here? Yeah. All right. Well, here's my last record. This, this will definitely be a dark horse out of the selection. So I was talking earlier about, you know, when you first got me a guitar and, you know, and you were definitely pushing me at a lot of blues, blues music, which, of course, is everything you were listening to. Right. And, you know. Like my kids do, it's like I stuck with it for a little bit, but a lot of it felt very unapproachable to me. You know, it was, it's, it's like I couldn't really get my head around what was going on with it, with my limited knowledge base and fell off of it for a little while. And then as I started to get older, I started to discover some music on my own. And, and I didn't start getting serious about music until I started hearing something that was like, I think I get what's going on there. And, uh, and what, I'm going to play a track here. This is actually the very first song on guitar I learned how to play all the way through. Which is Blink-182's All the Small Things off of their <laughs> 99 release, Enema of the State. <laughs> you know, I remember 
when Blink 182 came out, and I thought, well, that's an odd name for a band. And I remember hearing this song, and I thought, you know, that's that's got some energy to it. And then as you started getting into them and playing me, um, their drummer, uh, Travis Barker. Travis Barker, yeah. Yeah, the guy is unbelievable, you know. I mean, serious business. This guy is a badass drummer. And, you know, um, I think Blink-22 is sort of, uh, sometimes, like, for people who are, like, into, like, real punk, they're not, like, real punk. They're, they're categorized as a pop-punk band. Right. Which is, which is, for some people, kind of a slight. But it's, like, th- this song is so catchy. And if, if anyone out there wants a really interesting watch, there's this guy, Rick Beato, who is a, um engineer and producer out in LA and he has a YouTube series and it's called What Makes This Song Great and he does artists from the whole spectrum of the the whole thing. I mean they have stuff on there about Pink Floyd and one of the first ones he did was about this song and since he's got some access he gets the multi-tracks to a lot of these songs and so he pulls everything out like on this section of the song he pulls everything down besides the vocals and there are all these really complex harmonies going on in this section of the song, there's this two-note synthesizer line huh. that you can hardly hear over the din of the guitars, but he goes back and he plays it, and he just plays it with this little two-note synthesizer line in there in, and the little synthesizer line out, and if you take it out, it, it doesn't it doesn't hit as hard, you know? And, um, you it, know, I think... Blake, Blake uh, too deserves a lot of credit for that pop part because they just know how to really construct a song. Production. You know, when you're talking about a song like this, it's obviously a studio recording, right? Yeah. And uh, all you can do, as opposed to recording live, to really make a song have texture. You know, right. I think Rick Rubin is another one who's a master of doing that, you know. Um, just little bitty things, you know, whether it's just hitting a low note on the piano in a certain part of the song or just really uplifts the song, you know, it makes all the difference. Yeah, and I, I almost put on here, but it's just so hard to find. I happen to have a copy of it that is on my hard drive from years ago. Blink-22 did a live album called The Mark, Tom, and Travis Show, which I've actually listened to more than all the studio versions of these songs. Right. Um but it's like it like released in Japan and had like a small release here in the U.S. But it was only around for like six months and then totally disappeared. Um, but that that one's great and you know is a foundation of a lot of my sense of humor. Um, I was hanging out with our bass player and, and roommate Nick Polly and it, our singer Andy and myself. We've listened to the song a bunch and included on this, you know, Blink Twenty Two is sort of famous for their stage presence and their sense of humor because it was part of their shtick, right? And uh, and they're like raunchy and you know lots of like sort of childish humor and but uh, it was so much a part of their identity included at the end of this very long live record is thirty three whole tracks of just stage banter that whoever was putting this thing together thought was funny and it's it's like forty minutes of just random clips of them just talking a bunch of shit with each other that's funny. but me and Andy referenced this so frequently I finally played some of this for Nick and. Uh, He's listening through it. He's like, oh, you guys are making inside joke asides to this a lot, aren't you? And we're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's really frequently. But this this record, though, Anima of the State, you know, this was uh, Blink-22's 
third record, I believe. But this is their first one to get like the really whole hog big production. Right. Um, this was also the one that, that sort of, I, I think, cemented them as, as a major act, especially with this song. It was a huge hit, Adam's song. And, and this is the song that sort of took them from being just a novelty punk band that could like write some some hooky, dancey little two minute thirty songs, but you know, really write some serious material. And this song, Adam's song, this was actually it's a sad song. It's it's written about uh, one of their friends who uh, who committed suicide in high school, but. It, this song blew up on the radio and this became like like I've heard a lot of other guys you know big rock bands talk about it's like you want to get the song that girls are going to listen to and this was like the sad in your room song for like 10 years see it's it's great to me that I mean one of the benefits of having uh, a son or probably a daughter for other people is that to me uh, I would have never turned on to this music I wouldn't have never listened to it and especially if somebody said, have you heard this punk band, Blink-182? When I heard the word punk, I immediately dismissed it because from my generation, I think Sex Pistols. And to me, the Sex Pistols barely qualified as musicians, you know, and it just, it wasn't worthy, you know. But when I listen to, this is musical, you know, this doesn't sound like what I would call punk music. It's It's got a punk attitude. I mean, and you've, You've hit me to all this stuff that it's a whole different kind of punk. But I mean, you got chord changes, you got excellent drumming going on here, you got excellent bass playing going. Yeah. It's I'm telling you, if you slice these songs about even in parts where you don't think there are harmonies going on, right? There are these like really delicate harmonies, like in all the small things in like the pre chorus section. There's this, it's not singing just a straight harmony to it, it's this, it's this harmony that descends the scale into the chord change of the start of the yeah. chorus. You didn't hear the Sex Pistols ever do anything like that. <laughs> well, you, you have Sid Vicious that, that at many shows, li literally they had a guy backstage playing bass for him. <laughs> Probably a good thing, too. <laughs> so anyway, I'm glad that the punk kind of came into its own with, with the attitude plus music. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and Blink-22 is one of those examples where it's, I've heard a lot of people write them off, you know, even other musicians, because it is, it's it's sort of the pop version of punk music, you know, it's it's the punk music that people that aren't going to wear a mohawk and a bunch of studs in their in their jacket right. listen to. Um, but it's like my same attitude towards like, oh, it's just so easy to play big and loud. It's just like, I'd, I'd like to hear you write a song that's, that's this well put together because, right. you it's know, hard. Yeah, it is really hard. It, it sounds really simple, but the, the whole thing is so delicately balanced. <laughs> and this song, I mean, you know, a lot of people my age for sure will like, you know, had a lot of friends that decided they were going to pick up a guitar and this was like the only riff they learned is like that intro riff. <laughs> you know, if there's an acoustic guitar, they're dead. that's definitely where they're going to be pulling up. But anyway, that, that you know, that's that's just a great listen. And there are so many good songs on that. And also, you know, a lot of funny stuff on there. Right. But uh, like, like I said, let, let's let's keep moving here a little bit. But, okay. but before we get off of that, a couple other great tracks. That if you want to go back and list that record are the first track, Dumpweed, and uh, the second to last track, Wendy Clear. Those, those are two of my favorite songs off of that record. Okay. 
Well, my next and last band is, uh, I got to take it down to the city that care forgot. And that would be New Orleans, Louisiana, where I got to live for a while as a, as a young guy. And the cool thing about living in New Orleans back in the early 60s, early to mid 60s is when we lived there. I think we moved there in 64, moved away in 70, I mean, excuse me, 69. So the top 40 stations radio, you know, AM radio dial, you would hear in those years all the great music that was coming out. You'd hear the Beatles, you'd hear the Beach Boys, you'd hear the Dave Clark Five and all that stuff. But you would also hear... Aaron Neville singing Tell It Like It Is. You would hear, you know, the meters, or not the meters yet, but you would hear like Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, James Brown. You'd hear soul music on the top 40 station on regular rotation. And I love this intro that the Nevilles do to this classic tune that Peggy Lee made famous, I believe. But uh, let's just listen to this one little minute rhyme. The harmony is awesome. These guys are so tough. Never know how much Live I harmony. <laughs> Never know how much I care. Oh, but when you put your arms around me. Get a feeling that's so hard to bear. Yeah. So this is the Neville Brothers live at Tipitina's. Uh, recorded in 1982. Uh, yes, 82. Yeah. And uh, the, the original recording is just nine songs. The subsequent releases have another disc. But this is the opening tune off there. And this record is so great. I mean, it just captures the feel of Tipitina's and, and uh, you know, it's not a huge room. And, you know, there was a bunch of locals jammed in there that night. And it was probably hotter than hell. <laughs> yep. And, uh, a lot of cheap know. beer. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think the Nevilles, especially in, like, the, the modern Zetgeist, you know, I think they've sort of fallen out of a lot of people's minds. And I think maybe it's because they, they are, well, a lot of those guys are still alive and doing it, and, and they're still going out on the road. We, we saw them just a few years ago down at the uh, Taste of Colorado. Right. And uh, it's, it's like, it's almost since they're still out there making music, it's like, oh, they haven't risen to this icon status. But th- those guys could literally play anything. Yeah. And make but, it funky. Yeah, and make it sound like their sound. Yeah. But still totally encapsulate whatever was being done with it. Well, sadly, you know, Charles, uh, the keyboard man, has, has left us, and and uh, and uh, the sax player. Uh, all right, we got Art, Aaron, Cyril, Charles, the horn man. Art is the keyboard player. So Art's left us, and Charles has left us. So we got Aaron left and we got Cyril left and uh, Aaron has kind of settled down a little bit. He doesn't tour much anymore. A little bit. He lives up in uh, New York State, I think. He lives on an organic farm with his wife. And Cyril, of course, has been out with the Royal Southern Brotherhood and stuff. 
Uh, that was a couple of years back, but you're right. You know, it's funny how amongst people like in your generation, everybody's everybody's hip to the meters, right? Which the, the meters was kind of like pre Neville's. I mean, uh, art that was kind of Art Neville's band, and they and Aaron was in it early on, and then Cyril came on board. Uh, Charles wasn't in that band, but um, you know, it kind of they slowly kind of became the Neville brothers. And to me, I mean, well, there are certain groups and certain musics that just kind of reach this apex. Like Live at the Fillmore reached an apex of musicality to me as far as blues-based and jazz-based jam music. It just doesn't get any better than that. You know, people have tried... (laughs) <laughs> and the Neville brothers, especially on this recording, they t- take the New Orleans thing, they take the drumming, the funky bass lines, the incredible singing, and it's it's live. This whole record is live. There's no overdubs on it. And not they just, like not like certain major jam bands had to do it their live releases. Right. Yeah, I had to go back and overdub. Not these guys. Certain man. bands with dancing bears. Yep, we won't go into all that. I do love that band, the Dancing Bear Band, and that that was almost one of my picks. But, uh, and it's funny how the the Nevilles actually got a shot in the arm from the Grateful Dead, because the Dead had had them uh, open for a tour or two for them, and it really bought them a whole nother fan base. Um, Wow, listen to that, man. Love me some Neville Brothers. Willie Green on drums. Oh, mercy. It just doesn't get any funkier. Yeah, it was cool. You and I got to go see him down at the Taste of Colorado for free that time. That was awesome. It was cool. Not quite as cool as when we got to see the Almond Brothers at Red Rocks for free. But that was just because that was a little bit more illicit. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Taste was actually a free concert. but well, Yeah, we, we were supposed in. to be there for free. Right. The, the Alma Brothers for free was, uh, well, that was a surreal magic moment. And we had our, on our uh, invisible suits. Uh, that's, that's where we found our invisible suits. <laughs> I still have mine. <laughs> I got it in the closet somewhere, but yeah, I don't know where it is. It's hanging over there. I just, I can't see where it is. <laughs> that's too far inside of a joke though. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to tell that on, on another podcast. Sometime. That'll be another time. <laughs> So anyway, those are my my faves for today. Anyway, Freddie King, Albert King, and the Neville Brothers, and you had I, uh, I had uh, live at Leeds, live at the Fillmore East, and Blink One Eighty Two's Enema of the State. Well, those are some good good calls there, Ryan. I quite enjoyed this little this little podcast here. I, I you know between you and me, I'm sure we can make a, a thousand of these do, doing the same thing. You know, that's as you can see why we had to. Keep it a little bit limited, but you know, I, I picked those three out because if we're talking about records that had like a um, some serious gravitational pull in my taste for music, you know, those mm. those are three big ones for me. Right. Yeah. Similarly for me, I mean, <clears throat> what's really cool is that um, the ones you picked actually are ones that I could have picked, except maybe the Blink One Eighty Two one, which didn't, you know, that was right. That, that you, you probably going to pick a blank record. <laughs> yeah, but but the 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 live live at the Fillmore and live at Leeds are two huge records in my life, and I mean, man, 
when I was 14, 15 years old, I had my drum set up in my bedroom and I put on my headphones and I would try to play along with Live at the Fillmore and I would try to play along with Live at Leeds. And I'm telling you what, if you're if you're schooled in how to count time and how to properly play beats <laughs> and you try to play along with Keith Moon, I'm telling you what, it's a very challenging thing. It, it will break your brain. <laughs> but you set me up on that. You set me up on The Who because I remember right? it must have been when I was eight Poor or Ryan. 10, somewhere in there. Yeah. I can't remember. But you bought me like a like a cheap tape player boom box from probably a garage sale or something. And the, the tape that you gave me along that, with that was Tommy. Well, you know... I mean, you give me some grief about that, but you were coming into your adolescence and this is, that's what Tommy's all about is to me anyway, is what a mind bender being an adolescent is, no matter what your circumstance. Right. And it, it is a kind of a surreal experience, you know, coming of age. Uh, it, Tommy, of course, is an extreme case of, of all that, but that's what makes great opera. <laughs> <laughs> and it is an opera. <laughs> that it is. Un- unlike unlike many other rock operas, it actually does fit the opera format. It does. You know, there's a reoccurring musical themes in it. And uh, there's an overture. Right. As a proper right. opera should have. Exactly. I think one of my favorite cuts off, off the Tommy album, though, is the instrumental called Sparks. I just love that thing, man. Yeah. It's, it's, so that, that combo of Sparks and Amazing Journey. Yeah. And, and again, you know, the cut of that on that deluxe version of Live at Leeds is is so good because that, that's another example of like in the original version, it has all these layered instruments, but it misses none of it when it's just stripped down just to just the drums, guitar and, and bass. Well, to me, that's a testimony to the instrumentalists, you know, to Townsend and, and Keith Moon and, of course, John Entwistle. I mean with those guys and maybe particularly Entwistle, you know, who was playing so much and breaking all rules himself uh, as far as how you're supposed to play music. I mean, he was just walking all over the place and not playing proper bass lines. And of course, Keith, Keith Moon is all over the place, not playing proper drum parts. And But here you have three instruments up there and it's, it's more than enough. <laughs> I mean, oh, it's yeah. plenty. I mean, you, you know, want to talk about some guys that can fill some space. Yeah. Actually, Ryan and I are sitting here. Today's what? May 22nd? May oh, 23rd. May 23rd. This freaking pandemic is still going on. We were supposed to have seen The Who on Saturday, May the 4th, right? Something like that. Start start yeah. of May. And that was even May after we were already supposed to see them back in November. I know. We were supposed to see them. And then that, that show got canceled. And then here comes the freaking pandemic. And this, and now we're getting our money back, which is nice. But that's downside. Not as is, nice to see in the who. Right. Who knows if we'll ever see him now. I mean, and we were both looking so forward to seeing that together, you know. And it would it was kind of been the, um, well, we'd seen the Allman Brothers. You know, yep. we saw the Neville Brothers. Bob Dylan. Uh, saw Bob Dylan, that's right. And uh to have the Who on there. And we got to see the Rolling Stones that's last right. summer, thanks to our friend Mr. Jay Marciano. Which you can hear in our uh previous episode, our interview with him. Yeah. So I mean, that was really cool seeing the Stones, you and I, you know, and and uh 
I was really glad you got to see that because, you know, the Stones, let's face it, they're a sloppy-ass garage band. I mean, <laughs> that's what they are. And with, 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 with trying to be a blues band, and they were an okay blues band, you know. I mean, I think they're better now. The, the uh, blues record they released a couple of years back was pretty good. Yeah. But um, pretty sloppy. And I've seen them. I'd seen them two other times besides last summer. Last summer was going away the best performance I've ever seen him put on live. J- Jagger does have that that star power to him. Whoa, you can't deny that. It was it was great, man. And, and I mean, it helps that they have these killer musicians backing them up. They got Chuck Laval on keys and stuff, and and uh, you know, great horn player up there and stuff, and great yeah, background singers. No, no one else was uh, helping Mick run his seventy five year old ass up and down that. 200 foot runway all night long man they 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 uh that show when we saw it was like three or four days after the tragic shootings at uh down in el paso and then uh over in dayton ohio that had just happened i think three to five days before we saw that show and they closed out their encore was give me shelter and i'm telling you just thinking about it i'm getting goosebumps i mean jagger didn't say anything about that but I mean, here the seventy-five-year-old guy, and the veins were bulging on his neck. He was he was bringing it, man. With every, it was as powerful of a performance as I've ever seen out of Mick Jagger. Twenty years old, fifty years old, seventy-five years old. It was freaking awesome, man. It was that, really that, that song is as far and away my my favorite Rolling Stone song, and and you can pull up on YouTube again, going back to isolated tracks that Mary Clayton's vocal solo in the middle, yeah, is just. An, an all-time piece of of musical performance. It is it for is. for just bringing it hard. You want to read a funny story? You read about that story. I think she was pregnant. They got her up in the middle of the night. She came in with her hair and curlers. And, yeah, you know. <laughs> that's for another another podcast. Anyway, uh, lest we digress again. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, everybody, thanks for uh, listening to us here on Mile High Music Podcast. Uh, yep. We actually are now available on Spotify, also. Um, so if that's a way you like to listen, prefer to listen to podcasts, that's another way you can hear us. And whether you are listening to us on iTunes or Spotify, if you could, please, uh, just shoot us a subscription and, um, leave us a comment and a rating. If you could, you know, kind of, kind of help us get this albatross off the ground for us. Absolutely. We thank you guys for listening. It means a lot to us. And we appreciate all you Movers and Shakers fans out there that have checked in on this. And uh, we will be coming back, folks. The, the, that band will be back at some point in time. We've just got to get through this, this pandemic with everybody safe and healthy. And uh, we're thinking about all you guys for sure. So everybody take care. We'll see you on the next podcast. All right. Bye.